0: Welcome to the Sport and Rights Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights.
1: Hi, I'm Mary Harvey, Chief Executive of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. This episode brings together experts, academics, and practitioners to discuss the implications of a new report by the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to the UN Human Rights Council. The report advances the discussion around the rights of persons with disabilities to participation in sport under Article 30 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, also known as the CRPD. Amy Farkas Karagiorgos, advisor to the Center on Child and Disability Rights, talks to four leaders that have been involved with the drafting of the report and who are working to advance Article 30. Amy will also talk to one very accomplished Special Olympics athlete as well. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining
2: me today for this very important conversation, where we will look at the intersection of sport, human rights, and disability. Now, we are coming together because last month, the United Nations Human Rights Council launched a major report. The report was put together by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and it was looking at the rights of persons with disabilities to participate in physical activity and sport, as is outlined in Article 30 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, also known as the CRPD. Now, persons with disabilities make up roughly 15% of the world's population. And for those of you that are not already familiar with Article 30 in the CRPD, I'll point out a few things. So it specifically calls on governments to encourage and promote the participation of persons with disabilities in both mainstream sporting and disability specific activities. It also notes at all levels and on an equal basis with others. Furthermore, it talks about ensuring persons with disabilities have access to sport, recreation and tourism venues. It also states that children with disabilities must have equal access to participate in play, in recreation, leisure, and sport activities, and this includes in the school system. This report is a big deal. It's being published at a time when the worlds of sport and human rights are starting to come together But with that said, there still is a significant gap when it comes to understanding and recognizing human rights violations and their impacts on persons with disabilities. So disability has remained largely invisible as a human rights issue. And this is even more pronounced when it is combined with or through the lens of sport. So we're going to try and shed some light on this today. But before going any further, I would like to acknowledge that we're living in a pandemic. Uh, It would be remiss not to mention COVID-19 and the impact that it is having on sport for persons with disabilities. Uh, The center has already done a podcast on the intersection of COVID sport and disabilities. So if you're interested in that topic, I encourage you to check that out. I'd also like to clarify that in today's discussion, we're going to be using the word sport generically speaking, to cover all different forms. So, since we only have a short time for this conversation, let's jump right in. I will start by introducing each of our panelists briefly. First, we have Facundo Chavez. He's the Human Rights and Disability Advisor for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. He's a renowned human rights lawyer and disability advocate. He's been a leader of many, many organizations of persons with disabilities at the national, regional and international level. And he is someone that I personally continue to learn a lot from in my career. Next we have Susan Masilla, currently manager of government relations and global development for Special Olympics for the Africa region. She has a background in exercise and sports science. She's been with Special Olympics for 14 years in many different roles, including National Director of Special Olympics Kenya. She brings a wealth of experience in disability and sports policy and partnerships. And she is the lead for Special Olympics on Safeguarding in Africa, a topic that we will definitely be discussing today. Shalel Tanah is the Special Olympics athlete from Kenya. She has been, With Special Olympics since 2011. She competes in swimming and in cycling. She attended and competed in both the World Summer Games in LA in 2015 and in Abu Dhabi in 2019. She has two silver gold medals. She also currently serves as a board member of Special Olympics Africa, I'm sorry, Kenya, and she's a coach with the Young Athletes Program. She's worked as a teacher assistant and she's an entrepreneur. Then we have Juan Pablo Salazar, who's the governing board member for the International Paralympic Committee, a passionate global activist for the rights of persons with disabilities. He's held many high level positions internationally in the Americas region and is in his home country of Colombia. He's a very accomplished sport administrator, having served as chef de mission of the Colombian delegation for the Beijing 2008 and London 2012 Paralympic Games, He's also past president of the Colombian Paralympic committee. And last but not least, we have Eli Wolf, director of disability and sport international and the power of sport lab. He's a leading researcher, educator, and advocate for sport and social justice, diversity, disability, and inclusion. He was a member of the US Paralympic soccer team in the 1996 and 2004 Paralympic summer games. And I have had the privilege of working with Eli since 1999. So with that, I hope we can get into a really rich discussion on all matters related to the sport rights and disability. And I'd like to start off by asking Facundo to please help us understand some of the top messages that have come out of this report because Facundo was very much at the lead at the drafting and, and pulling together this very monumental piece of work. So, over to you, Facundo.
3: Hi, Amy, and thank you, colleagues, uh, for having me in this uh, podcast today. Um, I mean, if you have to have three takeaways out of the report, uh, I would resume them being inclusion, in the structural design, and in equality and non-discrimination. Um, and when we are talking about inclusion, uh, we are talking about the participation of persons with disabilities in their communities, in any community where they live at, uh, including if that's the case, a sports community. So, um, unfortunately, the reality of what is happening to persons with disabilities is that sports—it's largely—and and with that also including, of course, physical activity, as you referred before. Uh, it's it's largely relegated to rehabilitation, right? And this is kind of portraying what had been the, the historical thinking that person with disabilities need to be fixed to be part of society, and no other really uh, approach in terms of community integration or inclusion. Uh, it's actually substitute for that, and that's exactly the opposite of what is happening in reality, right? Uh, people with disabilities engage in physical activity as everybody else walking around going to work engaging in education and that's the large piece of our exercise in everyday uh, life right so inclusion i would say it's the highlight the main highlight of the report as you said the second point is um, guiding states on what to do and guiding states of what to do means having a structural design that tackles um, The idea of achieving objectives for persons with disabilities that will help to develop once you can define these objectives that will help you to develop the structures to meet those objectives and then to have those procedural enablers that will allow you to actually get there right so the structural design I think it's an important part of the of the report as well and finally, the big piece, I think, or the, the most substantive contribution from a human rights perspective is um, the angle that is taken from equality and non-discrimination. And we're, we're talking about these as uh, through the document, you will see a number of references to these aspects. Um, and when we're talking about it, we're talking about not being excluded from sports, ending any exclusion, uh, requires always acknowledgement of what's going on, and action, right? So we can move forward um, into a, a into a better world. Um, another big piece of the report, and you will see it also um, as a cross-cutting issue, is the um, exclusion of women and girls with disabilities, and particularly what is happening to persons with intellectual disabilities, which are far far behind. Uh, the rest of the community and the final points that I would say that it's also crossing equality and non-discrimination it's violence and abuse Uh, unfortunately the issue of violence and abuse because of how societies commonly operate um, and this is manifested pretty much everywhere uh, has a disproportionate impact on persons with disabilities and women with disabilities and children with disabilities unfortunately are much more exposed to, to the risk of violence.
2: Thanks, Bakundo. Those three points are really important and I think they're gonna to continue to come up as we talk. Um, can I ask you a follow-up question since you talked about some of the groups that are facing more challenges and I, I'm i thinking of children here. Um, and I know that the, the report You know, it talks about how public spaces and playgrounds should be available for everyone to use and that governments should make sure that children with disabilities can play sports and do sports with their peers that don't have disabilities, you know, both in school and out of school. But is there anything else that the report brings to light when it comes to children or is there anything else that we can emphasize here?
3: Yes, um, I think what the report does that many times it's not taken into consideration, it's acknowledging the agency of children in the way that they want to engage with the community. right? So it's this shift from, I mean, this is not only happening to children with disabilities, it's actually something that happens to all children. Um, But what it really does is to say children are subjects of rights as every other person with disability, and they have agency to decide on how they will chill and on how they will develop their their engagement with their communities right. And that implies engaging with other children with and without disabilities and at the same time implies giving them the opportunity to be. Uh, in places where they want to be right, and this unfortunately also is also connected to the rehabilitation perspective right where children are you know parents decide for children where they should be going and unfortunately they follow the same logics that it, that exists in society right so there is a, a very strong um, push to put children in these situations against many times of their own uh, desires and and that has proven to be not only ineffective but also harmful in many cases uh, to the development uh, of children. The other aspect that I think it also re- uh, highlights in the report uh, is the issue of having um, a structural safeguards for children with disabilities to participate in safe environments. And enabling the environment is not only a place that it's accessible, right? It's a, it's a place that it's embracing the diversity of children with disabilities and that it's also offering. Uh, structurally uh, outcomes that are healthier and looking at what should be done in terms of putting together um, a series of measures that will deliver for them, right? So being exposed um, to, to these enabling environments, it's in benefits of the children themselves but it's also, it's in, in the benefit of the community where they participate, right? Being exposed to persons with disabilities at an early age continue to prove the most effective way of dismantling the stereotypes and build a narrative of disability that is diverse in nature and not a single language story.
2: I love that last point. It is so true. It is so important for us to have everybody in our communities and to see it from a young age. I personally grew up in an inclusive school setting and community setting and it definitely changed my viewpoints. So I'd like to turn now to Juan Pablo and see if you have anything else that you'd like to point out about children based on your experience or the report.
4: First, I would like to highlight like the, to complement what Facundo was saying at the beginning of of the main things I think the important headline today, Amy, is that the report exists. I mean, that in itself, it's a very, very powerful political message for both the human rights world and the sports world. Yeah, these were two planets that were divorced for far too long, that speak very different languages, and that for us that kind of know a little bit of both, it was so intuitive and so common sense that why are we not using sports as a tool for the human rights movement and vice versa, yeah? Sports is the maybe the most powerful platform to convey the maybe difficult to understand messages of the CRPD. So having a report on this that is like, you know, showing with actions uh, because in the, in the human rights world, this is an action. I mean, this, this is a Human Rights Council meeting that will be around Article 30 and sports. It's non-precedented and historic. The specifics of that, well, we couldn't be in better hands. We have the great Facundo Chavez uh, landing this, the technical aspects uh, of, of this and making sure that it's thorough and that this is, as you said at the beginning also, not only about elite sports but recreational why not we want to stay away from the medical model but it's also true that uh, rehabilitation and sports uh, there, there's a lot to do with rehabilitation uh, and sports so that is is also an aspect and then we land to your to your next question so so that's a big headline for me like right? the, the historic thing is we have a report on disability and sports of the office of the human uh, Rights Council, so that's amazing. Uh, now, coming to intersectionality, well, this 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 report, as with all the other tools of international law, interact with each other. So, Facundo just told us that this ex- explicitly talks about headline uh, about uh, safeguards, and uh, this is something we should implement. I mean, the world has been shocked after. The, the, the huge scandal of US gymnastics that we all know it doesn't stay in the US or in the gymnastics. I mean, this goes throughout and, uh, and children with disabilities are not away from this uh, terrible, terrible risk. So the report mentions uh, doing safeguards, but we can go further to the work UNICEF is doing regarding those safeguards. And that is where organizations like IPC uh, is looking to implement. We're still in early stages. The reason it it took so long for the CRPD world and the human rights world and the sports world to come together is because I think they were two, two movements that were in maybe early stages or or maybe that's unfair because they, they, this, this comes from the the amazing work of people from decades ago. But I do think it's fair to say that the CRPD only now has the maturity to take to tackle sports in a direct way and see how it can be used uh, to convey the messages and look for the cultural change the CRPD is aiming for and also the sports world. I mean, IPC, is right now a, b- a very big organization. Our Paralympic games are the third most, most important uh, sports event in the world uh, from, a, uh, from a broadcasting and, and consumer uh, data. Uh, but this wasn't the case 10 or 15 years ago. So we were struggling to, to grow and to become, but now that we became the big organization and the big movement that we are, we are ready to understand the broader purpose of sports for people with disabilities, which is to achieve inclusion and to bring inclusion through the world through sports.
2: Thank you, Juan Pablo. I have lots of thoughts and follow-up questions, but I'd like to bring in Eli first and allow him to expand anything else he would like to say on children, and then I'll jump back in. So Eli, do you have something you'd like to add?
5: Excellent, thank you. It's wonderful to be a part of this and just echoing all the comments that have made um, about the significance of the report that it exists. Um, But I just wanted to focus it on the children aspect, you know, as as, as far as when we were drafting early on with Article 30 and recognizing how important that is that in many ways that's the essential core, you know, young people, children, that right to play, that right to be involved with sport recreation and physical activity, and to have those options, you know, to be able to be included along the whole spectrum of include inclusion and have choices. And really it's about for a child and a young person to have, be able to dream, to be able to dream about those opportunities and about being involved in sport in different ways. And so for, you know, history, you know, there's been this exclusion. The, you know, children have not had those opportunities or they've been on the sidelines or they've been at mascot roles, you know, rather than being in, in really in essential participant roles or ways that they're really engaging in, in meaningful, rightful ways in, in the sport context. So that's why I think it's so essential that this aspect of children, in many ways, it's really the a core aspect of Article 30.
2: Thank you, Eli. Um, It is a a critical component of it, and it is highlighted. And I'd like to turn to Susan. Um, Susan is with Special Olympics Africa, and she's actually the lead on safeguarding for the African region. So following on what Juan Pablo was talking about, Susan, if we could shift and talk about this question um, around what came up in the report about violence and abuse, and then we can go back to some of the other Um, groups that we wanna talk about today. But if I could pivot to that um, and just say, you know, the report emphasizes that persons with disabilities and especially girls and women, um, you know, face a a risk, a higher risk even of psychosocial, physical, sexual violence and abuse than others. And um, that the, the sports culture really presents a scenario where you have this imbalance of power between athletes and managers. And in our case between, there's also this unique dynamic between an athlete and their personal assistant or their assistant on the field of play. Um, And so I'd like to just dive a little bit into this and say, what can sport federations like Special Olympics and IPC, or what can governments do to really prevent, monitor, and act around this violence and abuse in sport. And I just wanna highlight that this isn't just an issue for children. You know, there's plenty, of, this isn't an age specific issue, it runs for the entire, you know, there are adults who are also going through this. So, Susan, could you please elaborate for us and share what you think that they could do?
0: Thank you, Amy, and thank you for having me in the podcast today. Um, before I even go to the girls and women um, with disabilities, I think it's important to note that uh, in most cultures, a girl child is born like, with a burden of existence. So they will, uh, they will have to experience multiple um, vulnerabilities and multiple discriminations. And when we put that in the context of a girl or a woman with disability, then it becomes even more complex because they have to go through um, discrimination as a woman or as a girl, discrimination because of their disability. And when we compound with other issues like race, religion, culture, then it becomes uh, very, very complex. Um, so when we think about what confederations do um, as uh, all of us governments and I think the community, as you mentioned, I don't think this could be a one or a straight line uh, or, or a linear reaction or um, uh, a, a linear attention to it, but we need to look at the existence of the girls and the women. There's there's so much against them and that's why they are more vulnerable to all the exploitation, sexual, physical, emotional. And one of the things I, I it's to open up the space for the girl to be able to participate actively in sports and to feel like we belong here. We are not just, you know, visitors in this space, but we belong here. Because I think with that, then there will be other structures that will support that girl or woman to be in the sports space. And 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 then because when you look at uh, the way the opportunities that, that exist for the girl and the woman they are so limited such as you mentioned such that when they find themselves at the center of uh, uh, of their attention around sports recreation and uh, all those opportunities they don't want to take that away from them so to and things might happen which they will like be in a code of silence because they don't want to be told now you, they think they will not be able to participate in the, in the sports. So one thing is to open up the space for the girls and put up uh, those structures that uh, support uh, the girl. Then the other thing is um, diversification of uh, sports activities, not only for the federations, but uh, for every, every player. Why? Because there's, there's a lot of stereotypes of what sports women and girls can, can participate in and what they can't do. And and that also creates another barrier for them and, and, and make them more vulnerable to, to abuse and exploitation. But if they have that diversity from grassroots, actually I'm speaking from a grassroots local level up to the global level. And then um, the other thing I, I also think is um, if we pay, if we open up the space, that means we are paying attention, uh, deliberate attention to making sure that the girl or the woman with disability can participate in uh, in a safe environment. This means we need also to have investment towards that uh, commitment. And I I just want to to draw a very brief example. Um, In 2020, just before COVID, Hit the world before we went to the first lockdown. We did hold our first ever Pan African Games in in Cairo, Egypt, and this was a, an eye opener because there was a deliberate, um, actually uh, there was a deliberate intention to include female. There was a deliberate investment, and there was a deliberate, uh, you know, action to to make sure that women participate in the safe environment. What did we achieve? We achieved fifty percent of players. Uh, both women with disabilities and men with, uh, with disabilities participating. So to summarize the question, as I said, it's not linear. So we need to look at uh, cultural um, cultural barriers. For example, in Africa, there are some cultures that will feel it's the, it's, it's the fault of the woman that the, this and this happened. So even if you go to report, uh, nothing will happen. There's also the legal barriers. For example, if it's a sexual abuse, the, the, maybe, and, and I'll give an example of intellectual disabilities. Uh, maybe when you, you go to report, they will say, oh, we need evidence, we need all this, this. And this girl, when the act happened, maybe they did not know whether I have to preserve this and this for evidence. This is something very, very, and, and actually one, one interesting thing around this intellectual disabilities also, when you look the way maybe legal framework will interpret a sexual abuse, they mostly say it was not consented. Now this is a girl with maybe a, a girl or a boy because now it's it's both both um, gender. Um, they have gone through they they have intellectual disabilities. Probably they've not not been trained. They don't know they don't have the awareness of their own body, and they walk towards this man or woman and they they have whatever they do with them. The law will say they consented, but you can look at their intellectual cognitive capacity, that was not consent at all, but there's nothing you can do. So it cuts across um, so many issues in the society, which mostly addressed in the the declaration of human rights and also the CRPD. So for this, we should not just look at article 30, but I think we look the entire document and, and also use the other legal documents to accompany that. I hope I've answered
2: the question. Thank you. Susan, that was really rich, and yes, you've answered it, and you've highlighted a couple of things, which is, you know, that this isn't just a girl's issue. This is for both um, genders, and also people who identify as other um, on the spectrum of, of sexual orientation. And also, I just this whole point about legal capacity. Um, I don't know if Fakundo can make a, a brief remark about, you know, how inclusive and accessible uh, the reporting needs to be and how we need to ensure that people with disabilities do have the, the ability to voice um, what's important. So, Facundo, could you add something? Yeah, I think
3: that's actually a very, a very key aspect. Uh, the first one is, I mean, as it happens today in generally in the women's rights movement, uh, we need to believe that person with disabilities, when person with disabilities are denouncing violence or sexual abuse, um, we of course need to acknowledge that uh, they have. Everybody has different mental capacities, right? Um, and that's something that means we acknowledge. And systems need to be in place to, to support persons with disabilities um, to express and to come forward and to, and to say what they need to say. And at the same time, we need to be respectful of the sexual rights of persons with disabilities, right? And not assuming that because you have an intellectual impairment or a psychosocial disability, actually you cannot engage in a sexual relationship that is actually consented, right? So uh, how do we address those issues? Well, basically we need to have better systems. And are the systems the ones that will be providing for the necessary safeguards and at the same time, the enablers for people with disabilities who have a, a life that is uh, sexually rich as, as well, right?
2: Thanks, Bakunda, for that perspective. Would anyone else like to touch on girls and women before we move on? Okay, I was just wondering if, Um, Juan Pablo, if there was something the IPC was doing that you wanted to mention?
4: Well, I'm I'm far from an an expert and always prefer women and girls to talk about women and girls. Um, But IPC does have a a women in sports committee. We do strive for specific indicators of women in leadership uh, roles. I know that uh, my colleague Rita Vandril, who, who chairs that Women in Sports Committee, uh, has this on, on, on her radar, um, and having women as agents of the of the changes they need to see throughout um, our movement. So we do strive for uh, equity in leadership uh, positions. And uh, we, we do have this on our plate. We do know that. Um, that there are high risks going on. And uh, there's actually a whole committee on safeguarding. Uh, that, that again we're trying to abide to the to the directives of of UNICEF. So indeed it is on on IPC's radar, but but uh, I I feel far from from being an expert on on gender issues.
2: Thank you so much for coming in and sorry to put you on the spot. Now, I think we should get a little bit practical. Um, This report talks about certain roles that different groups play. And so I'd like to go through some of them. We're not gonna be able to cover all today, but um, I'd really like to start with the role that athletes play in moving this agenda along. And for that, I'd like to bring in Shalel Shalel has been engaged with Special Olympics as an athlete since 2011, so she brings a very important perspective. And I'd like to ask you, Shalel, what do you see as the role for athletes with disabilities, Special Olympics athletes, or allies even, but right now we'll focus on athletes, to increase the inclusion? So over to you. Thank you. Nice to have
6: you here. So athletes should speak up on positive and negative experience. So you should never talk about the negative. Also talk about the positive that's happening. You should be both sides. Athletes should be put on off. Like athletes should be put in like in decision making. Like if you're going somewhere. We should also be in the decision, not only coaches say, we are going here. So that's the plan. We should also be included. Athletes should mentor young athletes. Like, we should also mentor young athletes. Because I was a teacher assistant, I was mentoring them. And I was also doing in Kangware, a, a small slum. So I used to mentor the small athletes, their mothers. And everything else, athletes should be role. I athletes should be role models. Like you should tell the young athletes, I went through what you're going through, but I'll. You should mentor them and give them hope that you will reach where I am right now. Like I have a small business in Arak, you can also own a small business like female athletes should be given opportunities like in sports, like majority of the sports that we have, like in basketball, or football, it's majority of the men who participate. Like you can count the amount of, like if you go for a game, maybe one sport will be only women and the men will be having like four or five sports in them. So you should include the ladies so that they're not doing only individual sports like cycling, swimming, athletes, like we should be, majority of, we should be equal. Yes. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah, you touched on a really important point, which is that we need to consult with athletes. If we are sport administrators, organizers, governments, you know, sponsors, we really need to consult with athletes to know what you want and where the problems or the issues are. So, for example, you brought up uh, having equal number of opportunities for girls and women to participate in sport, and perhaps some people don't recognize that that's an issue if they don't consult with athletes and see that there is this imbalance. So, um, and indeed, athletes have a key role to play as mentors and role models, and Eli, I know that you work a lot on mentorship. So I'm gonna to pivot to you and ask as a, a para-athlete as well, if you have any thoughts on the role that athletes can play to move the agenda along.
5: Yes, for sorry, sure. I'll be interested to hear also other colleagues, it's a, I think it's a really important area, you know, having worked in athlete advocacy across the board you know, for the last 10 years or more, you know, it's really interesting to see about athlete voice um, and I think we see it quite a bit. We see it in with gender, with women, female athletes uh, speaking up and being vocal about equality um, and non-discrimination. You know, we're seeing of course a lot with the you know, Black Lives Matter movement. And, and I think that it's really important that athletes with disabilities are able to you know, speak truth to power, to be able to you know, address inequities and human rights. Um, but I do think that there is a level of you know, education and mentorship that, you know, that I think that in many ways the athletes with disabilities may not feel as comfortable or knowledgeable or aware or, or, or really informed about why and how to be vocal and how to have athlete voice. Um, so I do think there is a level that's I think a little bit different when you see race, gender, LGBT and then disability. I think disability is kind of on the up curve and we're seeing that there's more and more opportunities and need for athletes to speak out on human rights um, on different levels of both at grassroots, local levels, just about the right to play and being able to access your communities and your facilities and, and then all the way up to more um, national or international environments. But I think Athletes being able to be supported in that and being uh, and, and not being silenced, you know, but I think being able to listen and hear. Um, but I do think that there's an interesting aspect of, of empowering and mentoring and supporting athletes with disabilities. Um, you know, even to learn about Article 30 and even to learn about these, these aspects we're talking about today, I think there's, there's just that growth of the movement and being able to get people engaged. So, but I'm really curious to see what others think as well.
2: Thanks, Eli. And I know that the IPC has done a lot in the athlete villages in previous games to promote and educate people about Article 30. So I wanna bring in Juan Pablo and see if you'd have anything else to add.
4: Well, my thoughts on that is that there should be like a differentiated engagement platform for athletes. Uh, At the end of the day, all these movements is about them. I mean, the lead sports, organizations like IPC. It's about the experience of athletes achieving their maximum excellence. So that means that they will get a platform. If they want to use that platform or to put that platform at the service of the broader human rights agenda, that's fantastic and it's very much welcome. Uh, but I think they're also entitled to not do it. You know, I think I think that's fine. Um, meaning the cameras are on Muhammad Ali's face because he won the Olympics and he's the best boxer in the world. And he can choose to to use that cameras in his face to promote civil rights for uh, African-Americans in the US or he cannot, and and both are fine. If he chooses to do so, it's very useful. Uh, If he doesn't, I'm very much on the same page with LA. He should at least have some basic literacy on the struggles of his own community, yeah? So you have different tiers. You have the athletes that are super committed, super informed uh, that uh, that, that are media savvy and that, you know, are good enough to get cameras actually on their faces. Uh, And those for us are are maybe the, the ones we're most looking for to work with, to promote these messages around article 30. There's a second tier of athletes that may are not super committed uh, uh, repost stuff on their social media, but they are aware. Uh, and then there's a third tier of athletes that don't know and don't care uh, or know, let's say they don't care. They know there are people with disabilities, they know, but they are training to be the fastest or, uh, the, or the, uh, under, under competition, and they need to focus just on that. And they don't want to do anything else. And that's fine. I mean, f- the, the, the lifespan of an athletic career is very short. So if they w- want to use their eight or 12 years that they're doing a sports and at elite level just to win the medal, I think that's fine and respectable. What we don't want it's athletes that don't know to the, the, the issues of the community they belong to. So we do struggle in the Paralympic villages and in other types of engagements we have with them. We work closely with the Athletes Council to give them give them some basic literacy on what the CRPD is, what is this whole human rights and people with disabilities thing, and what is the, the, the part and the role that athletes could play if they want. But again, um, I think it's important that athletes don't feel pressure to to become, you know, the next uh, Kaepernick of of the disability movement because that also comes with costs. You know, uh, the athletes uh, going again to the civil rights movement in the Olympics of 68, uh, Mr. Smith and Mr. Carlos that did the, the, the Black Power fist, they were stripped of their medals and uh, their sports careers ended that day. Their symbol will stay forever and their lives will always transcend because of that very powerful symbol, but their athletes' careers ended. So I I understand uh, if an athlete sees this trade-off and doesn't want to. Uh, What we need to do as organizations is the athlete that is engaged and wants to use his platform, we need to give him all the tools to do so properly and by properly I mean aligned with the values and uh, and um, objectives of the CRPD so that's where we are.
2: Indeed knowledge is power right so you have to be aware of what that power could lead to and you also need knowledge just to advocate for your own rights and I think that's the basic premise here, which is if we can educate them about the CRPD when they're at the games and they go home to their home country, then they can figure out where their advocacy and their voice fits and where they can ask for what they have the right to. So I'm going to move on to states. We've, we've touched on states, but Facundo, is there anything with the role of states or governments, another word for governments, um, that you think we should just highlight today?
4: Yeah, what is key
3: for states is really to have a strategic plan, right, to define clear objectives, assign responsibilities, establish structural measures to counter discrimination, particularly for women and girls, uh, pair their budgets with the mainstream investment uh, to avoid leaving persons with disabilities behind, establish safeguards against violence, find indicator to measure the structural, and procedural and outcome results, Collect data to inform the indicators, um, implement a sound accountability mechanism to monitor and take remedial action towards uh, meeting their objectives. Um, All of this should be done in a participatory way and in an accessible way. And the strategic plan should both include public areas under the direct responsibilities of states, as well as incentives and nudges. To private sector, including through regulation activities. Uh, with that, if you have that, you 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 can start uh, walking the top, right?
2: Yes, indeed. Um, all very good points, and I hope some governments are listening to this because they could get some pointers. Looking at the private sector, you know, there's um, a lot here around sponsorship around sports, for example. Um, Fakunda, uh, sorry, Juan Pablo. Do you want to add anything about um, the private sector at this point about the role they could play to advance human rights for people with disabilities in sport?
4: Absolutely. Well, first, they sponsor games, so they in- enable uh, persons with disabilities to actually do sports. So that's fundamental for our movement, all the allies, and uh, and you know, and the uh, funding that uh, is around. Sports for people with disabilities, but once they get engaged, private sector can do two things. One is mainstreaming within their own companies. So if we have a car company that that uh, sponsors the IPC, well, they should look at themselves and them in the mirror, and we can help them to do so to see how their uh, HR policies or accessibility in their uh, in their retail spots and whatnot, meaning they can do 360 consultations on how inclusive they are within their own companies. Secondly, um, they can promote the messages of inclusion with people with disabilities on their adverts. Uh, Meaning, why not see people with disabilities buying those cars and, you know, enjoying that uh, beautiful beach view at the end of the, the commercial? (laughs) <laughs> with, with the car that they're selling. We do have some best practices there. We do have a lot of, of um, also media partners from the private sector that uh, cover the games. So that's also private sector that uh, cover them properly, meaning they, uh, they under, understand uh, the differential approach to cover athletes with disabilities and they do it properly. And uh, and the end, yes, they they move the agenda on a mediatic aspect, which, as 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 you know, if if the objective of the CRPD is to shift a culture, well, media is probably our most important ally, and media goes through private companies and through private broadcasters, and uh, and we're on we're on both.
2: Yeah, media has a huge role to play. Um, I'm going to bring in Eli, who has some experience in this area as well. Thanks, Juan Pablo.
5: And I just wanted to quickly add just about kind of the shift and kind of the really exciting movement toward inclusion and universal design that we're seeing in the private sector and corporate sector. And I mean, some of the amazing companies that are coming on, like Nike with the and and really seeing universal design and how the, from a business standpoint, the investment and then you're also seeing the Valuable 500, and you're just seeing, a, a, I think, a really dynamic, important time that are, are really reinforcing Article 30 um, to be able to really see the value of the private sector and, and how uh, much disability is getting in there and becoming part of that universal design approach. Um, so I just wanted to share that comment.
2: Yeah, I would love to see more sport focused entities become part of the Valuable 500 commitment. Um, that would be amazing. I'm going to shift a little bit now to sport federations. You know, we have both Susan from Special Olympics, we have Juan Pablo from the Paralympics, the IPC, um, and I'd like to just start off before I go to the IPC and S- Special Olympics. I'd like to start off because there's a recommendation in the report that I think is really important, and it's actually number 78. If anyone chooses to look at the report, and please bear with me, I just want to read it for to make sure our listeners know what it says. And it says that local, national, and international organizations involved in sport, recreation, fitness, and physical activity should commit to the full inclusion of persons with disabilities. And those that already have committed to human rights and non-discrimination overall must explicitly include and address persons with disabilities. Let's look at what this means for sport federations. And I'd like to start just with that recommendation. And Eli, I want you to kick us off. Um, and could you just tell us what that means?
5: Yeah, no, it's great. No, thank you. It's, I think it is really important. I think you're, you're seeing a lot of, you know, many international sport federations, national sport federations, local sport organizations that have non discrimination, uh, diversity, and inclusion efforts. And, and the majority of them are, are still missing disability. You know, they may say something about including all, but they're not being explicit about um, disability. And I think that Article 30 in this report really calls, you know, for, for that recognition. And really the time is now, you know, that disability gets to be more visible within the non-discrimination and human rights initiatives within sport. And so I think that's really what that means is really just to make sure that any sport entity that's committing itself to non-discrimination and and human rights, that they're really ensuring that, that the disability is part of that initiative and part of that policy process.
2: So can you tell me, can you clarify, do sport organizations have a responsibility to respect human rights and in line with the UN guiding principles on business and human rights?
5: For sure. I mean, definitely. I think the the guiding principles on business and human rights are really a clear guiding path and an indicator for the fact that sport organizations need to make that commitment and across the board. And and also that disability is very much a part of that that commitment.
2: So you just talked about that, you know, not every sport federation has disability mentioned. Could you give us a concrete example of, of a group that has left it out and what you think they could do to change it?
5: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, I think there are quite a few across the board of international federations um, or even international. If you do an assessment, you can see that it's really missing across the board. But I think one that I think is really important in this conversation is the International Olympic Committee, um, particularly because of their um, principle six Um, which is about non-discrimination. Principle four is more of a broad human rights commitment that is overall, but principle six really indicates particular groups. Um, And even in 2014, they added sexual orientation, Um, but, but right now disability is not part of principle six. So I think it's really important that that as a setting a standard, really a guiding post, a leader in the sport movement all of its collaborations across the board, Paralympics, Special Olympics, Deaf Olympics, but also considering that all the persons with disabilities both as athletes, but also leaders, stakeholders, people with disabilities are throughout the Olympic movement. And so, and disability is is an element of of that whole system. And so it's, I think it's uh, really important.
2: Great. I'd like to bring in Juan Pablo. Do you want to add anything?
4: Well, well, yes, maybe I would like to say that, in general, what, what I feel is that the discrimination towards people with disabilities has a very different motivator than discrimination towards other uh, social collectives, meaning there's not a cuckoo's clan Klan chasing after um, blind people, you know, there's no, no one feels that uh, they're moral or religious. Um, beliefs are being challenged is if people in wheelchairs want to get married or or adopt uh, children. Uh, So I think that's good because there is less associated violence towards the movement of persons with disabilities as opposed to other movements, but it also has a, a very evil in disguise. And it is that it's easier to ignore, meaning they don't hate us but they say, like, what? Yeah, of course we include people with disabilities. Can they walk that extra mile and be more explicit about it and see that this comes to reasonable accommodations and to changes here and there that they have to do in their policies, in their infrastructures and whatnot? Uh, I think it is. Uh, so it comes down to what you said uh, before, which is information is power. and. Uh, we need to inform more all these federations that I'm sure don't hate people with disabilities, or don't discriminate uh, with, uh, with like an evil or nefarious uh, motivation, uh, but could do a better job. So yeah, I totally agree.
2: I totally agree. I think some could just do a better job at being explicit and, ex- and being there is a recognition that some, that we need for each of our groups. Susan, do you wanna come in and add? Yeah, thank you, Amy. And I will just uh, continue
0: with the the last thread from um, Juan Pablo. Yes, um, for sports federations, knowledge, as you say, knowledge is power. And I think one of the areas um, to start providing this knowledge and making them more inclusive is uh, demystifying the stereotypes uh, about uh, disabilities. Because sometimes, as, as Juan Pablo mentioned, sometimes it's not inclusive because they don't know what to do they they there is a perception that uh, oh you need to have very specialized equipment you need to have very you to change the entire system to include uh, persons with disabilities so if if it starts from educating the federations first demystifying those stereotypes and and uh, championing and advocating for the universal designs it because at the end of the day actually the universal designs are even cheaper than Implementing separate uh, programs, and then um, the other thing. And I want to to just write again on what Ella talked about the the clause in uh, in IOC. You see, national federations many many times they follow what the international federations are subscribed to. So if the international federation has not subscribed to explicit disability support, then the national federations will be a little bit relaxed, and and they will not have any attention to that. So it's important. Um, but, but again, the national federations can also start practicing some of these policies, because I'm sure all these national federations, for example, are also governed by other legal aspects in their own uh, countries and areas of jurisdiction. And maybe, for example, if your country, there's a law about disability inclusion, you can still start with that, even if you're an international Federation has not told you what to do then. Then we can have top down, both top down and also from grassroots to to up. And and I just want to to share a brief example. When Special Olympics started uh, uh, um, in the 60s, we were a a sports organization for persons with intellectual disabilities. Then we moved, um, we are working with persons with intellectual disabilities. Currently we are working towards this is a sports organization led by persons with intellectual disabilities. So that, that um, evolution is also helping us change our perception. So we are not working for, but actually we are, when you look at it, we are just a support. The leaders are those athletes with intellectual disabilities. So I think it can either start from top or down and, um, and try to, the other thing is policy federations and sports organizations have very beautiful policies sometimes, but they are never implemented. So can we have also a focus into implementing uh, these policies and uh, starting the work at the grass or from whatever angle, which works, whether it's from international to grassroots, horizontal, vertical,
2: whatever angle that works. Yeah, thank you. Susan, those are all really important points. The trickle down effect, the trickle up effects, you know, implementation, not just representation. So um, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about athletes very briefly that, sorry, persons with disabilities have a role in leadership positions in sport. Um, And I'm going to ask Eli and Juan Pablo if they want to make a comment. If anyone else would like to just jump in and let me know. But, you know, it's really going beyond people with disabilities just being the token athlete. I mean, there's so many more roles and leadership roles. And Juan Pablo is a governing board member at the IPC for example and a person with a disability. So so do you want to start us off Juan Pablo and how important is it to see yourself in a leadership role?
4: Well, we all see the we all love the, the nothing about us without us so so that uh, needs to be very well implemented in in IPC. I will tell you this however which I find fascinating. It's not mandated in IPC meaning the, the board uh, or the president or the vice president, we don't have it like in our bylaws that it should be people with disabilities. So what we have seen is inclusion of people with disabilities in leadership roles where you have an environment of inclusion by default. You know, we, we don't need to teach inclusion to, to the 160 something national Paralympic committees uh, in the world, that our our the 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 biggest chunk of our membership, we also have federations and and other organizations, but the biggest chunks chunk is Paralympic committees, which are uh, DPOs. You know, it's it's organizations of people with disabilities that maybe are not in the human rights discourse of their country because they're. Sports aimed, but there are organizations with people with disabilities at the end. So I think there are a bunch of non spoken agreements that we will have our leadership uh, with people with disabilities. But our current president doesn't have a disability, our vice president uh, does. And we're fine uh, with that because there is very thorough uh, representation in the governing board, in the staff. Um, in the different uh, administrative roles that uh, IPC has in classification, in... uh, uh, I'm thinking of doping and maybe I'm not sure of that one. Well, anyway, on all our structure, there is representation of people with disabilities. And I think that is fundamental uh, for our... uh, Because it's us people with disabilities that know the particularities of people with disabilities doing sports. So it's very technically oriented as well, maybe not so human rights uh, approached, but more like, uh, okay, you need to understand that what blind people need as a reasonable accommodation in a swimming pool is this and not that, and the the classification and and, um, competition should be include this and, and not that, which is very specific to sports. So yeah, for, for us, it is uh, fundamental and uh, and we will try to keep it that way.
2: Thank you. Eli, do you want to add something?
5: Yeah, no, just briefly, I wanted to add just how important the leadership piece is. Um, if you're looking at like change factors of, of what influences change, um, not only for disability, but across the board of human rights and social justice, one of the key components is about representation in leadership roles and so just that in and about itself is so important both within the the disability adaptive sport but also in mainstream sport roles you know just to have somebody with a disability to share that um, expertise and that perspective um, in the boardroom and and in the leadership positions because if you're not in the if you're not in the room then there's you're not able to share the message you're not able to influence and so just across the board and disability as well to I think one of the main factors critical change factors of, of the progress of human rights and sport for disability is that leadership piece.
2: Thanks Eli. So there's so much more to talk about I mean there's a the role of civil society organizations and, and you know parent groups and I mean you could just go on um, but I would really like to wrap this up with a round robin. And I'm gonna ask each of you to come in and tell us one word, one phrase, one line, one message that you wanted to get out to the world today about what's needed or where we we are at. And I'm going to kick it off with Susan. Uh, Thank you, Amy. I
0: think for me, Two words come out very strongly. One from the report, one um, and I'll reiterate what uh, Fakudo started with, um, inclusion is the key word from this report. And and I think we need to start, everybody needs to start focusing on inclusion. Secondly, um, the other key word is empowerment of the athletes uh, with disabilities because if we, I think we are coming from an era where people will say we are the voice of the voiceless. So we need to empower them to be their own voice as uh, we've all um, discussed in this call. So for me, those are the two keywords,
4: inclusion and empowerment.
2: Thanks so much, Susan. Juan Pablo.
4: I think the headline this year is celebrate the marriage between the human rights and the sports movements. We're coming strong.
2: I love it. Eli.
5: And yeah, no, just briefly, I think uh, just this landmark report, you know, 10 years you know, plus after, just how significant it is to raising the bar um, within the, the world of sport and human rights to echo Juan Pablo. And also I think just recognizing the moment, the movement of progress, um, you know, that even though we've, you know, backwards and forwards and forwards and backwards, but we are moving in a direction toward inclusion. And I think that notion of representation, of inclusion, of, of non-discrimination, you know, I think all the more leaders we're seeing, all the progress, the changes in the media. Um, so I feel really positive and just so appreciative of, of this report and just celebrating it, but also just how significant it is for, for the future.
2: Thanks Eli for sharing. Facundo, over to you. What main message do you think we should take home today?
3: I think, uh, I mean, John Lena used to say that life is what happens while you're busy making other things. Um, so I think it's important to pay attention to what is happening around us, right? Um, not only what is happening to persons with disabilities, but to what is happening in this momentum, right? It, it's a very important and interesting moment. Uh, as Juan Pablo was saying, that it's bringing these two communities uh, to work together, to look at the future together, and uh, and pay attention and to ask yourself questions, right? Where where are women with disabilities? Where are persons with disabilities? Is the places where I'm engaging are accessible? Um, so be curious, keep engaged and, and keep going.
2: Thank you so much, everyone, for those comments and your messages. To conclude, I want to reiterate that we all have a role to play in moving this agenda forward to realizing the right of people with disabilities to participate in all forms of sport at all levels, from early childhood to adulthood, in both mainstream and disability specific settings. Let's be totally clear the world of sport must be proactive in ensuring that persons with disabilities have equal access as an athlete, as an organizer, as a spectator as well, and on an equal basis with their peers. I hope you have heard today that it is not just the disability community or disability specific sport organizations that have a responsibility to act. We must all do our part to raise awareness and bring visibility. So let's make this part of a larger conversation. Thank you, Facundo, Shalel, Susan, Juan, Pablo, and Eli for joining us or joining me today really and for sharing your valuable knowledge and expertise. I am in awe at all of your experience and knowledge. Thank you to everyone listening to this podcast. And we hope that you have gained a deeper understanding of the issue and the actions that can be taken to create change.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sport and Rights podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Please subscribe, share and review the podcast. To find out more about the Center, visit sporthumanrights.org and follow us on Twitter at Sport and Rights.